The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. The fourth foundation this evening is called Mindfulness of Dhammas, and that's usually translated as mental objects. But the word Dhamma has many meanings in the Pali language, and the two important ones for this are it means the teaching. It's, it's Dharma. It's the same word as Dharma. It means the teaching of the Buddha. And it also means phenomena, tiny little units of experience. So a favorite way I have of understanding this fourth foundation is that it's the Dharma in the Dhammas, so to speak. So it's looking at all the little phenomenon of our direct experience and understanding them through the lens of the Buddha's teachings through the Dharma. So with this fourth foundation, we're moving more in the direction of looking at the process of experiencing itself rather than the content of experiencing. So um, when we're involved in the content, there's always this underlying wish to we're just manipulating it somehow. We're wanting to make it happen. We're worried about it. It's all about me. But the more we can look at the process and step back and really have a sense of wonder and amazement at what is this perceptual process that creates the world that we live in. And so this foundation will lead us into, into uh, an exploration of that. There are several themes that come into focus in this fourth domain. One of them is that we begin to notice the patterns of conditioning that lead to getting seduced to various forms of aversion and delusion. So the other foundations have just been saying, notice what's happening. Notice what's happening. But they haven't been studying the the conditioning connectivity, like this is happening because that's happening. This has caused that. And we mean in a very momentary way, not like, you know, my unhappy childhood caused something. But but this second of seeing that causes this next second of wanting it, that sort of thing. And we also begin to explicitly work with abandoning unskillful states of mind and cultivating more skillful states of mind. So based on this understanding of what conditions what, we can begin to make a little more effort to kind of steer um, away from the unskillful and toward the skillful. And we also then we're looking more and more deeply because by the time you you get into this uh, foundation, there's more concentration and you can see more and more deeply how clinging works. How what is it that makes the mind grab onto certain things and hang on or push away? And so we're seeing at a more and more detailed level how that works. So this sutta, this part of the sutta, is a list of five lists. And each one of these lists and the elements in the list is worthy of an entire talk. And if you look on Audio Dharma, there are many talks on each of the elements on, on most of these lists. So it, this is going to be an overview um, of, these four li- of these five lists. The first list is the five hindrances. If you've been around here a while, you may have heard of them. We're having a long series on them from Gill right now. And I, I tried to give you a little guidance during the sit to tune into those a little bit. Um, I'll say more about them in a minute. But there's the hindrances, what's called the five aggregates, and the six sense bases, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the four noble truths. So that's quite a, a, a lot of stuff to cover here. So obviously it's going to be a high-level overview. We can perceive this uh, fourth foundation as a kind of an arc from moving from being dominated by the hindrances to to abandoning the hindrances and then seeing very deeply through these five aggregates and six sense base perception how clinging works. And then as we see that, the seven factors of enlightenment come into the fore and we can cultivate those and ultimately we may have an experience of Nibbana and then we deeply understand the Four Noble Truths. So that's the, that's the arc of this foundation of mindfulness. So the first set is the hindrances. Um, I don't know if, if uh, the, my attempt to remind you a couple of times might have just annoyed you, but if during the setting, sitting, did any of you notice that you were wanting something? Did you catch yourself in the act of wanting or in the act of wishing this weren't happening and rejecting something? 
Was anybody sleepy? Yeah? Was anybody just restless and fidgety and couldn't settle down at all? The fifth one I didn't mention is doubt, which is where you get all involved in trying to argue with the teachings. Maybe you didn't like the fact that I asked you to do that. And so you spent the whole time saying, why'd she do that? I'd rather just be quiet, you know. So that would be sort of involved with doubt or thinking, I can't do this. Now, these are so much talked about that I'm not going to spend very much time on them. But if we're really honest and we look at what happens during our sittings, we spend a huge amount of time under the influence and involved with one of these mind states with what's happening. Um, And the point is to really practice with them. Because if you notice that that's what's happening, then instead of being a hindrance, it becomes a vehicle for purifying your mind. So I'd like to read you one of the, from this sutta that we're studying here, what the instruction is for the first one, which is called sensual desire here. If sensual desire is present in him, he knows there is sensual desire in me. If sensual desire is not present in him, he knows there is no sensual desire in me. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire can arise. How arisen sensual desire can be removed. And how a future arising of the removed sensual desire can be prevented. Okay, so this is moving a little further. This is moving into a little more action here from the first three foundations. You're noticing what sort of things trigger this for you, and it's different for everyone, and what sort of things can you let go of that help it go away, and what sort of things can you avoid to stop it from coming back again. So it goes on with that same instruction for the next five. Um, So the most effective, the simplest way to work with abandoning the hindrances is just by noticing them. And usually um, there's such a difference between being entangled in it and believing it and just saying, oh, this is what's happening, that it, it has the effect of lightening up a little. But most of us have, you know, one or two of our favorite hindrances that we're really quite obsessed by in our daily lives and, and they're recurrent uh, themes when we're sitting. And so there are other there are other advice for the different, I mean, other countermeasures. So if you're obsessed with sense desire, then there's a, you can really work with training your perception and how much time you spend, you know, looking at beautiful people or whatever you're attracted to. How, how, how are you perceiving uh, food or bodies or whatever is attracted to you? And you can notice that the dynamic of sense desire is actually fed by gratifying it. So we're always thinking if I just ate that thing or, or had that girlfriend or whatever, that it would go away. But actually, every time you satisfy it, it sets up the expectation that this is the way to deal with it, and it gets stronger and turns into more of an addiction. So for ill will, we can practice loving kindness, and we can practice seeing the good in people, because ill will is kind of a, a filter for the negative. For sloth and torpor, sleepiness, we can try to put extra energy, bring extra clarity to what we're seeing. For what's called uh, restlessness and worry, we can be sure that we're leading ethical lives so that we don't have much to feel guilty about. And uh, also just mindfulness of breathing is a great help for general restlessness. And for doubt, we can engage in wise investigation which is not a lot of theoretical thinking, but really noticing, is this doubting keeping me from doing the practice? So that's a very quick overview of the hindrances, and and, uh, I'm just going to move on because these other topics are less often talked about here. But as you practice with these hindrances, and especially as you practice with wanting to notice how they arise, then you can get interested in You know, I'm always catching myself standing at the refrigerator and I'm wondering, how did I get here? Because by the time I'm there, you know, I want something (laughs) and it's harder to to turn away. And so I get interested in how did how did I get here? What I was upstairs. What is it that brought me down here? And so naturally, my investigation of what's going on deepens to to an extra motivation to keep track of 
to notice more carefully what's going on. And this is a lead into this next um, list, which is called the five aggregates. Now, aggregates is a word that means a collection of stuff. It really means a heap of stuff. So the Buddha categorized our subjective experience into five groups and just put things, it's like putting it in different heaps. So that's why it's called aggregates. He means to imply, importantly, that they aren't connected in any way other than being, you know, so many buttons and so many grains of rice and so many this and that. So these five aggregates, the first one is called rupa, which means body. It's the physical experience of some sense stimulation at the different sense doors. Feeling, a sight, a sound. The next one is the feeling tone that we've talked about of pleasant and unpleasant. The third one is cognition, which is where we take one of those sensory inputs and we recognize it as something. Like, oh, that is a cushion. This is a bell. Or... Um, and this is a really interesting one because we think that that's objective like oh sure this is a bell but there are so many perceptions that just drive our lives that are not at all they're so conditioned by our our, our own uh, subjective experience so you know just the recent election you can see all the perceptions that people had of all the different candidates and you can see just in the areas of art and music our, our notion of Oh, that's a beautiful thing. That's an ugly thing. How much that changes over time and how subjective that is. So perception is a very fascinating subject. Um, and between the feeling tone and this cognition, I'm, I'm, I was using cognition and perception. They're two different translations of the same word. Um, the feeling tone is kind of the root of the proliferation of emotional reactivity to things. And the cognition is sort of the root of continuing to think about it in a proliferating way. So the basic sense stimulus, the feeling, the cognition. The fourth one is called volitions or mental formations. And that is our reactivity to that. It can be in the in the it can be an intention to do something, or it can just be that proliferation of further thinking that goes on. And the fifth one is consciousness, which means just knowing that it happened at all. If it weren't for consciousness, we wouldn't know. So, for example, uh, I'm in my kitchen. I kind of have a food thing, as you know. I, I'm in my kitchen. I see a brown, round shape on the counter. So brown and round is kind of the at the basic visual stimulus level. And then there might be a positive feeling kind of simultaneously with a cognition, a bagel. Okay? And then it depends on, there might be the volition to eat it. There might be the volition to struggle with whether to eat it. I mean, all that, the whole drama of what to do with this bagel unfolds dependent on the environment of my mind. You know, am I hungry? Is it mid-morning? Am I thinking I'm dieting these days or what? That whole environment of my mind then conditions what volitional reactions there are to that perception. And I had to notice it in the first place. I may have overlooked it, you know, for three days, and finally I notice it. So the consciousness has to be there. So I'd like to, um, it's, it's, it's subtle to notice this, and it's very subtle to have enough concentration so that your meditation is just a, a series of these noticings. But it's quite fruitful to play with this in daily life. So I'd like to try a short experiment. As uh, Maureen mentioned, I'm teaching ESL, English to second, as a second language these days. And there's a phenomenon in English where even though we spell it all different ways, many, many syllables in English are just pronounced uh, you know, like about, the uh, and about. And it really doesn't have any particular vowel quality. It's just a uh. So I'm going to say a phrase, and I'd like you to listen to that phrase and see if you can recognize how many occurrences of that uh sound are in it. Okay? The phrase is Sarah Palin. Okay? Got one little laugh there. <laughs> So how many of you, I, I thought by that particular setup, how many of you noticed how many, how many of the uh sounds? Okay. 
It, it may help that the election is over, but it uh, I'm hoping that with that setup, it enabled you to focus on the actual sound and maybe tease out a little bit with a little bit of space around it. The difference between hearing the sound, which is just a bunch of vowels and so forth, and the immediate cognition of the image of that person and followed on by whatever your feelings about that person are. Okay, so there, so there's a, sometimes we can get so calm that we can see clearly the difference between this is just a sound, you know, somebody screaming at you, you fool, you idiot, you know, that's just a sound. <laughs> but it's not very often that we get the space around it to hear it as just a sound before we go right off into these other aggregates. So another key point about these aggregates, they're referred to as the five aggregates of clinging. And it's through clinging to one or the other of these aggregates that we actually create a sense, create and maintain a sense of self. So, for example, we typically think of the body as like where I am. You know, I am. This is where I am. And the cognitions are are what what's happening to me, what what I am in a way. The feeling tone is how I am. How am I? I'm happy or unhappy. The volition is I'm acting and why I'm acting. I'm doing this. And then the consciousness is a sense of, well, that's just whereby I am, as this author says. What, you know, how, how I come to be is through this consciousness. So that little extra add-on of me and mine and I and this is mine and I'm doing this is what raises up the sense of self. Um, the Buddha doesn't say there's no self. He, he, he doesn't... It's not the point that you think you have something but you don't. It's, he, he compares it to when you look at a chariot and you see the wheels and the seat and the reins, whatever the parts are, to a chariot. None of them individually is the chariot. The chariot is, it's a concept that comes into being out of these parts. And so our experience of, if we look closely, if we look closely enough at these aggregates that we can see them without clinging to them, we can actually see them arise and pass, arise and pass, arise and pass. And each one has its own moment of consciousness that this is happening and then that's happening. And there isn't any thing behind that experience that to whom it's happening. So we see, um, I mean, momentary senses of self are part of what arise. You know, an image of yourself, a, a familiar feeling can arise, a sense of, you know, volition. But those come and go and they're different and there's, there's no single unchanging core thing behind all that. And the way that this is liberating to see this is that really this sense of self is something that we spend a lot of time defending, worrying about. It's that aspect of self. It's not a strong, com- it's not confident. We're not saying that confidence is a problem or that, you know, acting in an in- integral way is a problem. It's nothing like that. It's all those things like, you know, self-consciousness and self-concern, selfishness and worrying about yourself. Those, those, the idea that there's something that's guilty, something that's, you know, there's something wrong with me, or I have to maintain this view of me. It's that sense of self that's very, that's liberated when you see that there is no, actually, there's nothing there. So the next contemplation is where we go in a little further. So we've noticed that there's some kind of sensory stimulation that happens and out of that the feeling and cognition come up. And usually we're grabbed right there by the cognition, the recognition that this is a bagel or something or or a friend. We're grabbed right there. So what if we back up and look at what is that element of sense stimulus, basic sense Stimulus. So that's the six sense bases um, to see how much more bare our bare attention can get. And um, let me just read the instructions for this. 
So we talk about the six sense bases. Those are the five physical senses that we usually speak of in the West, plus the mind. And it's very interesting that thoughts are given the same status as a sound or a sight. It's one more thing that you see happening. Here he knows the eye, he knows forms, and he knows the fetter that arises dependent on both. And he also knows how an unarisen fetter can arise, how an arisen fetter can be removed, and how a future arising of the removed fetter can be prevented. So here we're talking explicitly about what is this fetter. So the analogy that he uses is that what is it that actually grabs us? It's not something in the object, and it's not something in ourselves, or in the eye, but it's the craving that arises that connects the object and the sense door. So you've heard the expression, I can't take my eyes off this thing. You know, it's so beautiful. There's, you actually can feel the experience of you see something and it's, there's something about it that draws your attention to it and it's like you are fettered, you know, staring at the beautiful uh, Tesla sports coupe or whatever you have had your eye on. Um, so that's what's meant by fetter in the case of the sixth sense basis. This is really a very subtle contemplation and uh, it takes very developed concentration to see all of experience as just one or the one after another little moment. But these are the frames that create the movie. So even without so much concentration, um, let's try a little experiment. So move your hands in a way so that, so that you can both see it and hear it and feel it. And just hang out with that a minute and notice, see if you can tease apart those three senses. Just stay with hearing for a minute. And stay with seeing for a minute. See with feeling for a minute. I don't know if you can get a sense of how it's kind of, you know, it's this is this is a, a kind of a, a three-track virtual reality experience here. It's pretty interesting that these things are coordinated. You know, you see it move at the same time as you hear it move, at the same time as you feel it move. So those are three of the six sense bases, plus whatever you were thinking at the same time, if you could tune into that. So it's possible to deconstruct our experience into this six-track reality. And our mind is constantly, our attention is constantly jumping from one to the other. It's said that it's an amazing fact that there are only six things that are ever happening. You know, any moment of experience can be a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a, f a touch sensation, or a mental event. That's, that's, in a way, a complete description of what's happening in our subjective experience. So you might take just a minute and keep your eyes open and see if you can notice your attention moving from one of those to another. You might feel your body, you might see a sight. See that all by itself, your attention just switches from one to the other. Anybody having that a little bit of that? Can you see how your mind is switching? Did you notice getting caught up by anything? Did you hear maybe a sound suddenly, you know, struck you as unpleasant in some way and you started thinking, oh, that shouldn't have happened or you saw something you liked and an internal image came to mind. So that's the flow and in some, you know, you might want to spend some time, you could take a walk or you could spend a sitting meditation period just watching your mind switch from those back and forth. So this is also an exploration of the nature of consciousness because really each of those six Consciousnesses is a little different experience. Seeing is not the same as hearing. At some, at the physical level, it's different. Although they all converge in the mental events of cognition and, and bare knowing.
So as we are able to keep the mind with more continuity at this level of bare perception, then the glue of this self-centered clinging and fettering begins to thin out and can eventually sort of collapse. And then we really see the the deep seeing of impermanence and the selfless nature of reality. And the suffering that comes from trying to cling to something that's just ungraspable. I had an experience a few years ago. I went up to the Exploratorium in San Francisco, and they had an exhibit. I don't know if they still do, but um, when we first went in, it was a big panel like that sound panel across the back there, and it was just random dots of light moving across the panel, if if you've seen this one. And we look at it, and yeah, okay, you know, random dots of light. And we were with a child, and the child looked at this for a while, and she said, oh, there's a fish. Oh, there's a school bus. And and we could see, you know, we could see, yeah, okay, sometimes they're yellow. You know, she's got an imagination, you know, that she sees that as a school bus. But then she said, no, it's a school bus. And so we looked, and finally we got the hang. If you just moved your head in the right <laughs> sink with it, there, this is a great experiment. Somehow, suddenly, suddenly there was a clear picture of a, a school bus, you know, like on a neon sign, a school bus and a fish and all kinds of stuff going by. And if you, after a while I got, you know, I was kind of dizzy because I was going like that and I couldn't kind of stop and get back to the little dots. And it occurred to me that that's kind of like this insight in reverse. You know, we're seeing the school bus all the time because of the way our minds are set up. But in deep kinds of meditative contemplation, you can get back to the dots. So, um, finally, I'd like to read this is from another sutta, very famous, called the Bahia, the Buddha's teachings to Bahia. Bahia came and asked him, What is your, he, he, he thought he only had a moment of the Buddha's time. He said, What is your pith instruction here? What is the essence of your practice? And the Buddha said, when in the seen will be only what is seen, in the heard only what is heard, in the sensed only what is sensed, in the known only what is known, you will not be by that. When you were not by that, you will not be therein. When you were not therein, you will be neither here nor there nor in between. This is the end of dukkha, which means suffering. So when it's possible to just have these sense impressions come up without taking it any further, then you see that there's nothing to cling to either in the object itself or in your own internal experience or in consciousness, which is sort of the in-between. Now, this might actually sound to some of you boring um, or or, uh, reducing everything to a meaningless level or maybe even a little scary. But in fact, as we do this, what happens is that these beautiful qualities of mind that are known as the seven factors of enlightenment, they begin to come to the fore. So this is the next to the last list in this particular uh, part of the sutta. And all along, we've been cultivating these seven factors of enlightenment. The first two, the first one is mindfulness, which is about what this sutta is all about. And uh, the next one is called investigation, and that's the ability to discriminate, to tell things apart, to tell pleasant from unpleasant, to tell um, these various mental states like wanting and anger. So as you're practicing mindfulness, as you're practicing in this way, you're cultivating mindfulness and you're cultivating investigation. The third one is effort, which is what you need all along to keep your mind focused within these domains of mindfulness. And then it really begins to come to the fore in this fourth foundation where we're talking about learning to abandon the hindrances and cultivate these wholesome mind states. That takes a little more effort. So as these factors of mindfulness, investigation, and effort get strengthened, then they begin to happen more automatically. And there gets to be a great ease and a sense of ease and automatic. You're training your mind to be this way automatically without so much work. And as that begins to happen then it becomes much easier to put aside the hindrances. And as these hindrances, you don't realize how much these hindrances are happening to you. It's often been compared to, 
you know, when a refrigerator goes off and you don't realize that it was on. Well, there's hundreds of refrigerators in the mind and you don't know it. And it gets a little, it's all relative, you know, they get a little quieter and a little quieter. And then when you, maybe you have a chance to really, you know, go on a retreat or spend a long time in deep practice, boy, there is some quiet, quiet, you know, than when the refrigerators go off. And so... Um, as you really put these hindrances aside, then a kind of what's called joy, but it's a, it's not the usual sort of happiness of, of having some sense pleasure. It's an internal spiritual joy comes up, a, a deep pleasure that the mind takes in knowing what's happening moment to moment. It's kind of a, it's like surfing. I mean, you're, you're just surfing along on these aggregates or the six sense bases, and it's a great feeling of being free unfettered by these hindrances and that's a joyful feeling and then this joyful feeling helps to free the mind from clinging to external sense pleasures because you you know you can just sit down and access some of these mind states you don't need to go running around looking for something externally this factor can be experienced many ways sometimes it's waves of physical joy can they can be almost you know too agitating in a way and then after a while it can calm down and it becomes just a subtle smile of the Buddha you know the Buddha often has a little smile on his lips it settles into more mental happiness and contentment and as it settles in this way it leads naturally to the other factor which is tranquility and calm which is where the mind really settles so that not much is happening it's a very peaceful state of mind and as the mind settles then the mind is heading more toward concentration and concentrate, as concentration develops, you need less and less effort to stay present. It's, I've heard it compared to when you first start practicing, it's like a, trying to balance a marble on the top of an upside-down U, and it's, it's sitting there, it wants to roll off. You have to keep constantly putting it back, putting it back. And the more you practice, it sort of goes the other way, and it's like it's holding, there's a holding of your attention there that's happening automatically. And as that concentration increases, then the final factor of equanimity comes to dominate your experience. And your mind is deeply settled, deeply stable, and it is not tempted to be pulled off by anything that happens. So when these factors are all happening and they're in balance, the first three are called energizing factors and the last three are calming factors. And when they're in a in a perfect equilibrium, then then the mind can let go of everything and have a, a taste of Nibbana and the complete letting go of everything. There's a sutta that says, Just as a river inclines and flows toward the ocean, so the awakening factors incline toward Nibbana. So maybe I have a picture of, you know, it's like a, a, a wholesome vortex that you're falling into and and the, the marble sort of gets down there and, you know, falls into the perfect release. And that brings us to the final of these contemplations, which is the Four Noble Truths, itself a whole subject. But those are that there is suffering, that craving is the cause of suffering, that cessation of craving and suffering is possible, and that this path of practice leads to it. So it's once that you've really seen the total end of suffering, only then do you really know what was meant by suffering. It's like anything short of that has a little, still a little bit of, of that clinging to it. And so once you've seen that, then, then you are completely convinced that the Buddha was right, that craving is the cause of suffering and that it can be ended. Although it isn't ended for you, you've just seen, yes, no craving means no suffering and that it's pretty radical. And then, but you have this path and you, you're now you now understand for yourself that through doing this practice you have seen this this crack in this this moment of deeply ending suffering and so at that point your faith is strong strengthened that if you keep going this way will, you can cultivate more and more moments of lack of suffering um, so we abandoning the hindrances we're learning to see things in terms of the aggregates and the six sense bases we're cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment and we're finally penetrating the deep truth of the four noble truths so this sutta ends with a prediction 
I'd like to read. And I, the way to, the, to hold this prediction, I think, is seven is kind of a magic number, so, you know. <laughs> but, uh, and I'll, it really points to the necessity of the continuity of practice. So if you just see things as a perception once in a while and then go back to worrying about the stock market and then a week later you notice again, oh, maybe this is just a thought. That's not a sufficient continuity of seeing it this way to to develop these factors. Um, so monks, if anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven years, one of two fruits could be expected, either final knowledge here and now, or if there is a trace of clinging left, then the non-returning state of enlightenment. Let alone seven years, six years, five years, four years, three years, seven months, six months, three months, one month, half a month. If anyone should develop these four satipatthanas in such a way for seven days, one of those two fruits could be expected. So, of course, this little trick, if you could do this solidly for seven days, you'd be, you'd be pretty much in pretty good shape. Um, but I, I'd like to point out, in reality, I've presented this as if it's a as if it's a linear progression, and maybe at some level it is. But for most people, you know, the experiences are all over the place. You'll get a little taste of this joy one day. You'll be completely lost in the hindrances the next day. You'll have some insight into what I mean by perception another day, and you know, it, it, it's all over the place. And maybe gradually, if you view the whole history of people who've done this practice, you could make a, a general, you see a general trend in how this goes, but uh, it's not that direct for most people. So, and then finally again he says, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of Nibbana, namely these four satipatthanas. That is what the Blessed One said. The monks were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So this concludes our four-week study of this really very key sutta in understanding what is meant by mindfulness, which is the basic practice we do here. And I highly recommend this book, which we've all used to study for these talks. It's by a monk named Analayo, and it's uh, it's very readable. It's wonderful. What I was reading you was from the sutta itself, which is a, sometimes a little hard to read, but this book is a, a wonderful discussion of this very important topic. So we have a few minutes. If there are any questions or comments or anything about your experience with any of the little things I ask you to do or... Thank you for your talk. I have a question. I'm new to mindfulness, so um, I heard you say sexual desire or impulse, and then you said craving. Is sexual desire a craving? Yes, it's considered an example of cra- craving. means just when you get into that state where you really want something and it's pulling you along. So sexual desire is kind of the epitome of what's meant by craving, where you... Maybe that word doesn't work for you. So, you know, it's just, just, it's, it's, sometimes it's just called that kind of desire where you, you want something and it's pulling you, you know, you feel kind of bad and deprived if you don't get it. You know, once, you, once you're on the train of wanting it, you're, you're wanting it. You look, is there more to your... Well, but in, in this path, is the practice of sexual activity considered healthy or... Uh-huh. Unnecessary because yeah, that's a good question. Um, this path was developed for you know in a monastic setting, and it's holding up a very high notion of what kind of radical release is possible for human beings. So I wouldn't take it necessarily as telling you you know. How, what you need to do in your life, but it's holding out a possibility and an understanding that compared to something like sexual desire, which is not permanent, it's not a lasting happiness, it comes and goes, you're not ever necessarily going to be able to set up your life so that 
24-7, you are satisfied by sexual desire. You know, it's something that some people have a good balance of in their lives, and it works as a very life-enhancing force in their lives. Other people suffer a lot from thinking, if only I had the perfect partner, if only I had more of this, if only, you know, there's, there's so many different ways of relating to it. And when we're looking at, I mean, we're living in a world where people die, where there's change, where it's, where it's just out of control what we can get. So the Buddha is pointing to this deep truth that there is something that's inside of us that is a deep source of lasting happiness and satisfaction. And when you compare those two, you know, it's a wonderful resource to have so that as sexual pleasure opportunities come and go, or maybe you have them, maybe you don't, you don't need them with that, you know, oh, if only I have to have this with that quality. So there is this this other quality. And some people are drawn to pursue this to the exclusion of everything else, and some people are not. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I think sleepiness is descending on the room. (laughs) It's a sleepy hour. So I'm not sure if this goes along this topic, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about maybe a skillful way to work with praise and blame. Uh-huh. Um, I think specifically, I mean, so for me to be specific, like one thing I notice is if I feel like I'm being attacked or blamed, and it could be my perception, right, all the things I put on top of just the mm-hmm. seeing hearing mm-hmm. um, by a close friend or a family member, I will try to be aware of my speech that follows, and it's really hard for me because I notice I still, in that same conversation, may think of something to say back that may attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be really subtle. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So just wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? It's, It's very hard to work with things that are that deeply rooted, kind of in the middle of the actual activity you know I mean it's like a the end goal of this is to be so sensitive to blame a sense of blame arise praise or blame arising in your mind that you would be able to work with it right there you know while that person is talking to you but I think I would advise you to work with it other times as a preparatory way to being I mean of course do work with it as best you can in the moment but I think some of the real um ability to work with it would come from reflecting on it later if you are if you think back when you're on your own with a little more space if you think back about what that person said you might find the same feeling arising up again and then at that moment you can really work with just explore it let it be you know don't don't fight don't tell yourself this shouldn't be happening but just feel what does blame feel like where exactly is that contraction in your body or in your mind that's around blame And it's a great place to notice the phenomenon of your self-image. What is it exactly that's being attacked? The pain in something like being blamed, we, we think they're hurting me. But what's hurting you is your own contraction. You know, the physical pain is your own body tensing up in response to some sound stimulus. And so if you can use something like this five aggregates teaching to just really clearly see that person said that and based on all these assumptions that I have in my mind about what was meant this body reacted with gripping and that's unpleasant and given that unpleasant I don't like unpleasant you know so then there's aversion to unpleasant and then there's the thing you want to see next so and just by seeing that over and over and over again finally the the experience of how we're hurting ourselves by, by gripping eventually sinks in slowly. So. Yeah. I hear it often mentioned, and especially with Gil, that when you're sitting and something arises, you know to, to explore it and to be with it. But I find a lot of times that that's the time in my life when I'm calm and mm-hmm. relaxed. And, <laughs> yeah. and so... Um, there have been occasions where when something happens, if I have the moment, I'll try to go and sit and explore that. But mm-hmm. is it ever advisable to kind of 
okay, this is something I really want to meditate on or elicit so that I can see what's going on. Rarely. I mean, I did advise that to her, but I, I wouldn't. I mean, it's so it's so valuable to have this time that is calm. You know, you can also look carefully at at the calmness that you feel when you're sitting and, and be sure that it isn't spacing out. I mean, are you you know, are you are you present? Are you fully present? So if you're if you're kind of using that time to doze, I'm not suggesting that you are. But I mean, there's a kind of you know, there's a way in which you can be calm and spaced out. And so you can bring a little more clarity to what is happening. I, know, I understand you're asking explicitly. Shall I think well, about that? Sometimes when I'm gripped by emotion or something and I mm-hmm. sit, uh-huh. I rapidly it goes away. Uh-huh. Well, it does. That's true. <laughs> so, it does. So I feel like sometimes, you know, I don't really get yeah. a chance to explore and say, yeah. okay, you know, un- unpeel the onion as mm-hmm. were, and say, okay, you know, is this uh, suffering? Is it loss? Is it sadness? Mm-hmm. Is it loneliness? What, yeah. You know, what's going on uh, with that? And so, um, you know, it, so if... I'm sitting and I'm in an environment that's safe and comfortable, you know, is it okay at times to go, okay, I'm going to think about the thing that makes me, you know, one of the things that in my daily life when I don't have the chance to sit, Mm -hmm. one of those things that really pushes my buttons, Mm -hmm. is that something that could be helpful? Yeah, that's what that's why I said I I said rarely and or another thing is what I do a lot frankly is something in between. It's not the time that I send uh, that I s- spend on the cushion, but I sit around in an easy chair or on the couch and you know, if you have another 10 minutes of the day, do that. It is a valuable thing to do. And sitting and being calm instead of thinking and figuring, I mean, there's such a value in letting your system just do what it wants to do. And I would also, it takes time, you know, so just because it's calm now doesn't mean that it will stay calm. These things may not quite be ready to bubble up in, in your natural sitting. But it could be very valuable to take on a third practice of, you know, sit on the couch for half an hour and think about stuff in a kind of half meditating, half thinking about it kind of way. I'm just hesitant to say do that instead of the meditating because that's so valuable. But the other is valuable too. And it's kind of a halfway point between trying to, you know, work with it in the world and spending your meditation time stirring up stuff. So I think it is valuable if you if you have time for a third for a second practice there. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. And I would like to um, continue the discussion that lady addressed and also quite related to you, I believe. Because mm-hmm. uh, we all have a hot button and we come here try to have mindfulness and uh, calm and all these uh, um, skills or the knowledge applied to daily life. Mm-hmm. But there's time, like, especially friends, family, or say something, may not the intention to attack us, but uh, we do feel that thing somewhere. And uh, how we really, uh, we are, I cannot say I practice a long time, but uh, we all are practicing. But uh, how we really, at that moment, at the time, just could uh, calm down or apply. It's hard, but uh, that's why we are here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I would yes. like to discuss uh, or yeah. share how really... It's this moment is really hard to calm down. Mm-hmm. Just that moment. Mm-hmm. I just need that moment. I that's all I, my effort put into. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so that uh, that will work and uh, life will all yeah. better. So, yeah. how we apply this is uh, we practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And when the moment comes, also the words. Uh, Sometimes, <laughs> hey, you practice. There's a long time ago, family yeah. friends say, you the person always meditate and they go to those places to 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 meditate. Look at you, you still I know. have the hot button. I know. So, so I w- would like to. Yeah, it's it. Uh, for me, it's a matter as we as the practice becomes a high priority in our life and a central value in our life it becomes easier to think of it in that moment it's not going to be a magic solution that it's going to make it go away maybe it's not even appropriate that it should go away 
but it can make you, you, you can have the faith that if you honestly feel what you're feeling in the moment and allow yourself to feel it. You know, we talk a lot about this third way that's neither repressing what you're feeling nor acting it out, but just fully acknowledging it, fully admitting to yourself that you feel this way. So even in, in the heat of a family argument, if you notice that you're in one of these situations where I wish I didn't feel this way, why is my practice not working? Um, if it's that important to you, see if you can take just a moment to acknowledge for yourself what you're feeling. I mean, you, it, it requires letting go of maybe winning the argument or, you know, slightly stepping back from participating in what's going on and right there feeling fully what you're really feeling right then. It might it might be possible to say that that's what you're feeling, you know, right then. I mean, it's the truth of the situation. So the meditation isn't going to make us never, you know, feel hurt when someone says something or these these emotions come up. But the struggle to have them not appear right now, the struggle to not feel what's going on and to kind of keep our cool and keep, you know, that is not necessarily going to work. It, it, the truth of what's happening needs to be a higher priority for you than keeping your, you know, your social cool in a certain situation. It's not that you're going to act it out, but you may need to take a moment. To, you may need to just be quiet for a moment and feel. When you mo- mentioned mm-hmm. one thing, touch my heart. I really appreciate it since I learning. You said at the time express myself as in most of the time we, we get the button we kind of fight back that's our yeah. human nature right i thank you very much because uh, a lot of time calm calm may not work but right. uh, you mentioned one thing very significant i believe mm-hmm. you said uh, express because mm-hmm. if i express you hurting or uh-huh. make me feel so uncomfortable maybe mm-hmm. situation will be different mm-hmm. Or at the very least, express it to yourself. At least be very clear that what's happening now is that I'm feeling hurt or I'm feeling angry. And if you can just drop into the physical feeling of that in the moment, just step out of the conversation for a moment, take a breath, feel that this feeling is happening. You know, that's the best thing. Because then you're letting it, you're not adding that struggling energy to it, but you're letting it fully express itself whether it comes out in words or not it can express itself through your body instead of having that extra repression energy put onto it okay well it's after nine o'clock so thank you